Impact Up. Welcome to the Impact Up podcast, where you'll hear stories of how entrepreneurs and business leaders are using technology for social good. My name is Suzanne Livingston, and I'm the Vice President of Engineering at IBM Sustainability Software. Today, you'll be hearing an interview between our host, Daryl Pereira, and Brian Naus from Startup Project Owl. They will be talking about climate resilience and monitoring emissions. Welcome. This, hey there, my name's Daryl Pereira. I'm a senior content strategist here at IBM. Uh, really happy today to be talking to Brian Knaus from Project Al. So Brian, welcome. And uh, just to kick things off here, just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you came from. Hi, Daryl. Thank you. I'm Brian Knaus. Um, co-founder and CEO of formerly Project OWL, now OWL Integrations. I'm a technologist, live in the Northeast, live in New York City for the most part, find my way around, enjoy working in open source software and hardware communities, networking, disaster resilience, and a whole bunch of other stuff I'm excited to talk about today. And so I know we have a little bit of history, go back to the Call for Code, which you were the winner in the inaugural year of 2018. Just in terms of when you entered and what you thought would happen and starting a business, do you remember back and what were some of the motivations that got you involved and intrigued and actually motivated to pursue effectively what started as a career in this area and since I've grown? So I think to make sense of where OWL came from, I'm going to explain uh, all the other things I tried to do that failed previously. And I think that will clarify how this, this organization came to be. I went to college at the University of Rochester, studying mechanical engineering. And I'm not entirely sure, but I think I may have graduated dead last in my class. Though at the time, and even more so today, college is immensely expensive. And I took out some student loans to be able to afford it. And I'm pretty convinced, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty convinced at this point that the only reason they did let me graduate is because I paid tuition. And they were like, well, what are we going to do? Not take this customer's money. So in any case, after that, I moved to New York City. You know, I couldn't get any of the jobs I wanted in mechanical engineering. And so I picked up an old skill I had taught myself as a kid, which was programming. And I started making websites for restaurants. And it was really the perfect place because I could just walk down one of the avenues, walk into a restaurant, lay a proposal on the table, say, hey, what do you think? And so I was doing that for a few years, working with marketing agencies, doing the same kind of thing. And around that time, I found an environment that I became enamored with in hackathons. And I think you, and certainly you do, but I think most people probably know what a hackathon is. If you don't, it's really, in my opinion, two of my favorite things in the world in one event. And that is I played sports growing up. I played soccer in college. I love sports. Diehard Eagles fan. Go Philly. Go Birds. And so I really enjoy competition. The interest to just get on a field and compete or getting in a conference room and compete. The second part of hackathons that I really loved is the, the energy and the creativity of building something, coding a product, making something out of hardware. And so it's, it's kind of this weird scenario, right? Like typically the competitive people, the athletes aren't also the 
technical programmer. So it's a very strange mix of individuals. And oftentimes we'd find ourselves, you know, in the basement of a casino in Vegas competing in a hackathon. So I would say around 2015, 16, I started doing these a lot, developed a lot of friends in the industry, started competing in national and global hackathons and really found my way to not only participating and doing well in something I loved and was passionate about, but in a lot of hackathons, if you win, you get paid. And I was getting paid. And for me, it was the best possible career. I got to travel. I got to do things I loved. And at the end of the day, I was barely able to pay rent. So that kind of led to the IBM call for code. And at the time, I was going to hackathons I love flexing that muscle of coming up with something, creating something, like going to the gym, right? Practicing. But ultimately, it's a little insane. Like every weekend, you got to come up with a new product. It's a very challenging way to live. And I think ultimately, I was really interested in finding something I could commit myself to. And, and my strategy at the time, I didn't know if it was going to work, was have one of these hackathon projects take off. That was the hope, the dream. And I was very fortunate in the IBM call for code that we were able to do that. That's awesome. That's great. And I know I can complete the other side of that story from my side was that I know at the time working as part of the call for code team, just to see you come through and beat out thousands of other effectively solutions that have been posted in when the first call for code with Project Tal. And just to paint the picture a little bit in terms of how would you describe that original solution and that original path that you started on then once you won that call for code? The original call for code, for those who aren't familiar, is IBM started a, this really well done global hackathon effort called the call for code. But it was catalyzed from a series of natural disasters in the United States and around the world. And in particular, in the years 2017 to 2018, about a 12-month time span, there were four major Atlantic hurricanes. A major hurricane is categorized as a cat three or higher, so a three, four, or five. Typically, every year on average, there's about 12 or so hurricanes in the Atlantic basin. And on average, about one of them will be a major hurricane. So more or less every year, we see one category four, one category five, and that's tracked with the last few years. But in 2017, there were four of them. And maybe you remember some of these, Harvey in Texas, Florence in the Carolinas, Irma, and then of course, Hurricane Maria, both in the Caribbean. These were devastating events. Maria in particular was almost put at like a Katrina level event. Harvey was pretty much just as bad, certainly economically devastating, but less, it tended to have less loss of life than Maria and, and of course Katrina did. And so after these events, IBM put up this global hackathon and said, hey, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of technologists out there in the world, maybe some technologists jumping around restaurants in New York City who know how to code. Can you come up with a way to help communities prepare for, deal with, and recover from natural disasters? And I had a good friend at the time, Bruce Weed, who gave me a call. I was sitting in a Starbucks. I still remember this. I said, hey, IBM's putting on this competition. You got to participate. So we did. And that was your path. And then, and that original technology, like you said, it was largely to do what in the face of these major natural disasters? Yeah. So if you 
have ever been through a natural disaster. And that, that goes not just for hurricanes, but earthquakes, wildfires, gosh, even, I guess, COVID. I guess the jury's still out. Is it a natural or man-made disaster? It's, it's still unclear. So if you've ever been through a disaster, it kind of sends you back a few hundred years in time. You lose a lot of the modern tools we are used to to conduct our everyday lives basic stuff, communications, digital communications, email, cell phones, some of the more immediate needs, even food, water, medication. In hurricanes, typically infrastructure will be destroyed, things like roads. So it'll be hard to even drive anywhere. So when we were trying to come up with a solution, myself and the rest of my team, we were sleeping on couches in New York. It'd be very hard to prevent a hurricane from happening. And certainly, if all you had was like a few hundred dollars to your name. And so understanding that we can't really stop these events, how can we empower communities to have the tools they need to most effectively respond to them? And the one issue we saw that we felt had the greatest impact on the loss of human life was during and in the aftermath, and especially in the aftermath of a hurricane, there's this long period of time where people cannot connect and coordinate a response. So our perspective was to develop an open source powered, so people can own their devices and the data, communications and sensor networking tool, easy to deploy, solar powered, 3D printed enclosures. This way it could be made anywhere. It was cost effective enough that they could be acquired and distributed at scale. And even the name we chose, OWL, which now we're really into what is like the study of birds, ornithology or something like that. We, we became very interested in owls and ducks, but OWL originally was an acronym for organization, whereabouts, and logistics. And our goal was to develop a very cost-effective, easy-to-use system to help empower those three things, especially if you have no electricity and no cellular system. And so what we developed was a device we called the DuckLink or Duck and a software analytics tool to manage them called the OWL data management system. But I think ultimately what won us the competition was the nomenclature we were able to come up with, which of course you can deploy network clusters of these ducks, which we call cluster duck networks. <laughs> yes. I think that no, definitely it was smart in terms of the way that you did it. But I think also, like you say, it was dealing with a very immediate problem and one that's very real in terms of the communication, in terms of the idea that that you'd have a technology that can effectively provide internet when it's gone, right? And to provide them that that layer of communication that can help a first responder or somebody that might have, say, food or water or something to distribute, that they can know exactly which of the communities and where they should where they should focus their activity. There's a famous photo we used to show a lot in our pitch decks. When the response to Maria was ongoing, there was a run, I forget exactly where in Puerto Rico, there was a runway that had stacks of water bottles, almost a million water bottles. And they were eventually thrown away, trashed. They had kind of gone bad, which was also news to me that that could happen to water. They had sat on the runway because they didn't, the organizations running the response effort, they were disconnected enough that they couldn't effectively coordinate it, who needed what and which resources needed to be distributed to what towns and so on and so forth. So you somehow, and, and 
mind you, if you haven't been to Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico is not a massive geographical area. It's a few tens of miles vertically and maybe like 60 or 70 miles wide. It's really kind of the size of New Jersey. Now, of course, it is isolated. It is an island, uh, so it's a little more difficult to get to. But the fact that there was such a massive disconnect, an enormous resource of water was on the island that it distributed to the extent that it was in Puerto Rico, but they could not complete that last mile to the variety of towns and villages that needed it. So that was one particular scenario that stuck out to us. And we continued to ask over time, and even still to this day, you know, how can the solutions we develop prevent an issue like that happening and simultaneously make a response to disasters much more efficient and effective. Phenomenal what you're able to achieve. Now, in terms of that solution, it largely fits into this, I guess, category. Like you're saying, it's these networks, they need to be in place prior to a natural disaster. Natural disaster happens, and then these networks can kick in and can help provide that connective tissue, which could hopefully take that million bottles of water off the runway and get it to the people that really need it at that critical time. Say so one thing that's really fascinating about your story is that from that early seed in, and what you developed, say, starting in 2018, how you've evolved that and how you've moved into a related but different area. And can you just talk a little bit about your, you know, where you sit now and how you got from there to where you are today? Our original mission still continues to this day to empower resilience globally through connectivity, innovative connectivity. That connectivity can take many forms. Our original thesis was that the most effective use of this solution was to provide low-cost, open-source powered, disaster-resilient communications networks. And we have deployed those uh, quite extensively. In fact, we've deployed from Puerto Rico to Texas to even uh, just over a year ago, we were in India, about eight hours north of Delhi in Shimla where we deployed a network of about 60 solar-powered devices to a town, a mountainous town, uh, often hit by landslides and other types of monsoons. What we have found is while many people would like and are interested in disaster resilience, selling it economically, it's a very hard investment for many people to make. Uh, in fact, it's really in the domain of governments and militaries to provide disaster resilience from local to state to federal governments, many of which are not effectively investing in disaster resilience in their communities. Now, of course, I realize it's a very challenging problem. You don't know when and where the next disaster is going to occur. And so it, it's to a degree an insurmountable task. And, and the result is um, it, it's very hard it was and still is very hard for us to find opportunities to deploy this solution. And so we continued iterating. We kind of had like a, a laboratory full of all sorts of ducks to do different things and to explore opportunities. And, and we were collaborating, of course, with our open source community. In March of 2020, we released the firmware that runs our duck links, the cluster duck protocol, as an open source project in partnership with the Linux Foundation. That community has grown to over 1,300 individuals across six continents. And so not only are we collaborating with those folks to develop the open source firmware, but people in that community develop ducks to do things we never even thought possible. There's a gentleman 
who I've gotten close with at this point over the last two years in Ohio, who runs a maple syrup farm. He had built a sensor network of ducklings to monitor the vacuum pressure in the tubes from the tree taps. I'm not sure if you knew this. There exist maple syrup farms. This was news to me when he had told us this. But that's an example of one of these wonderful scenarios where we've thought up a thousand different use cases for our ducks, but we could never think up what our community is able to do. You know, So many more people than us with life experiences and living in different places. So we've been able to, to modify and adapt our ducks based on what we see in the world, talking to customers, talking to our open source community, learning what they need most. And we've moved heavily into sensor networks and particularly with a focus on climate and atmospheric emissions monitoring. So a, a sincere focus on uh, watching things like carbon dioxide and methane emissions in the oil and gas and energy and industrial sectors. But we still do, you know, unique sensor networks. We've been collaborating with an organization based out of England that runs a seaweed farm in the ocean. Now, believe it or not, they have several hundred strands of seaweed. They kind of hang from buoys as they're growing. Occasionally, they'll have a, a rogue buoy, a fugitive, and it will run away. Now, of course, this is bad, right? Because number one, if you lose seaweed, your products are losing money. And number two, it's running away in the ocean. It's pretty hard to find once it's gone. So we're developing a way to help them monitor in real time the location of each of those several hundred strands. So through open source, we've been able to take our original disaster resilience communications networks. Again, something we still work on is still true to our mission, but we've adapted that to a variety of of tools to monitor emissions, to monitor farms, to monitor other agricultural efforts, such as maple syrup farms, to providing sensor networks for NATO and the U.S. Department of Defense. And I'm very excited about a lot of these new opportunities and new applications of, of innovative open source powered sensor networks we have on the horizon. That's really interesting. And then and fascinating this idea that you're monitoring and that you know where these um so you can start to monitor it sounds like many different factors right like you say from the vacuum of tubes for a maple syrup farm all the way down to climate different aspects around air pollution different aspects you know different pieces around that obviously then through the monitoring you're collecting data and that side of it what's your thought in terms of where we are in terms of the amount of data we have, the data we need, what we can start to learn about certain things that might be happening in the environment around us. Yeah. And this naturally segues into the AI and machine learning discussion. You know, there's a, a metaphor, generally vague, but I think it's appropriate to detail the scale that data is the new oil. And I think one it's appropriate in the sense that oil is maybe the most critical natural resource, maybe apart from water, although water isn't particularly scarce, maybe not in the same sense of oil, but oil really powers the world. And it's not just energy it provides us with our fuel. It's that we need it to make plastics and all sorts of other things we use as a society. Data is taking a new place. So it, and data is interesting, by the way, right? Because 
information exists in the universe, the world around us, right? But data is only like actualized information. It only becomes data when we either sense it or codify it in a program or into an Excel sheet or something like that. So unlike oil, the amount of data for us in the world is not finite. There's not like a limit to how much data we can make. I suppose just maybe if you went as far as to say the total maximum amount of storage of every hard drive in the world combined. But aside from that kind of thought experiment, we're really only limited by the amount of data we can generate based on the sensors available to us and other data generation means. So I think it's we're growing into a world where a lot of things are becoming aware. Devices are becoming aware of their surroundings, where they are, what they're doing. You know, I think this was the promise of IoT, right? That like everything in your house would be connected from your fridge to your microwave, to your watch, to your bed and whatever else. And it didn't really happen in the way that we thought. And maybe because that original science fiction vision wasn't particularly useful. But what tends to be happening now is that a lot of systems and critical systems to us in the world are generating enough data to be holistically aware about what's going on in in that particular machine or environment's life. And I'll give you an example. We're developing a set of ocean-based sensors. Uh, The ocean is, as you said earlier, Daryl, kind of like a canary in a coal mine to let us know about our changing climate. And it can sometimes make clear changes before we're able to pick them up in the air and the atmosphere around us. And so we're developing sensor suites to monitor ocean health. So things like turbidity, salinity, temperature, pressure, presence of other types of chemicals or organics. If we're able to deploy those solutions at scale, we can get a much more holistic picture of what's going on in the ocean. Sometimes we need to today interpolate data because the data is scarce. Uh, We only have certain knowledge of what's going on at certain times or in disparate locations. And so the more of that data we're able to generate, the more accurately we or machines and computers can calculate what patterns are they seeing and what trajectories are these holding to. And ultimately, that's what sort of leads us to AI. I mean, at the end of the day, artificial intelligence, machine learning is just pattern recognition algorithms leveraged in many different use cases. And so for our focus is to really be the data generation component with a particular interest in carbon emissions, monitoring and ocean health. And and like you say, this idea that, I love that idea that you brought up, this idea that data is is basically is actualization of information and there's so much information out there. And I guess in terms of the machine learning and the AI component here, this becomes especially useful. The more that we can actualize the information around us, that data becomes useful, but then at the same time, that data becomes exponential, becomes very big, very quickly. And like you say, in terms of asking humans then to look at for some of these patterns, that's where this, that bit gets problematic and where the computers can step in. Is that right? Yeah. And we're already at that state, you know, with some of the recent generative AI components like chat GPT, for example. And this is a particular interest of mine because Going back to earlier in the conversation, at a lot of the hackathons I was working on pre-Call for Code, I was doing voice apps. So I was developing like tools where you could talk to a computer and it would build a website for you. All of those voice structures were really like tree diagram decision trees. And 
what you find out pretty quickly is like you can make something that feels kind of sort of intelligent if i write out enough trees you know if i say if this person says hello then you say hello back if they say can you open google well open a web page and do google and you can think in your head well okay i'll write out as many actions as i can think of what you find out is there are so many more possibilities in conversation in everyday life than you really give it credit for your brain is really good at sort of the instinctive intuitive aspects of living life. And so these new machine learning tools, AI tools, for lack of a better word, they, they're they able to do the fuzzy parts, the intuitive, the interpolation, sifting through enormous data sets and coming up with answers to fuzzy questions, things that the human brain is good at that our technologies haven't traditionally been good at in the past. And so I, I, I do see a real gener- generational shift here with some of this stuff. And it's going to extend far beyond, you know, the chat GPTs. Of course, this is maybe just one of the most obvious realizations of it at this point in time. Well, and obviously for ourselves, you know, here at IBM, we've got what's next, which has come largely on the back of chat GPT and what that's been doing largely in the consumer space. But yeah, in terms of when we start thinking about some of these enterprise applications, like you say, in terms of what the potential is and and they're in different areas. But in terms of then your use of these technologies and, and what advice would you have around, you know, what's the best way in terms of to start using? Maybe part of this goes back to a point that you touched on earlier is this idea that the use cases, you know, we've got technology and the use cases that we can, we can devise from that technology can be big. We can come up with a lot of different things that we can do. Meanwhile, there's the business aspects that, you know, that are very necessary to actually build something, a foundation on which you can build a kind of lasting enterprise that where if you do see a, you know, you see a vision and you see a solution to be able to bring that to life, you know, requires then the finances and the funding and the business wherewithal to keep that into a, a growing thing. How do you think about this in terms of you're right in the heart of this space around things like climate, data, business, how, how do those pieces come together? How do you think about those? And what advice would you have for those that might be, you know, interested in stepping into that space? Well, I think they're all interesting components. And certainly if you want to build a company operating in those spaces, you have to take into account each of them. And they all come with their own distinct challenges and intricacies that make it difficult to operate effectively. And we're, we're still figuring this out to this day. I mean, I feel like we've bit, barely scratched the surface of what we can do and what other companies in this space can do. I think for us, it was always important to develop a solution and a business that could make an impact. I think we were getting very tired and I speak for myself certainly, but I I think most of the folks on my team feel the same way that there's so much technology out there and, and a lot of technology that was raising so much money in Silicon Valley. That's just not interesting. Like there's been 10 million SaaS based businesses and a lot of them do quite well financially, but they, they've become almost boring. You know, it's just one B2B software after another. And we were very interested from the start to make something that had a real mission to make an impact, uh, but to do so with technology that we're passionate about that shows the creativity we have for the way we generate technology and, and the fun we have with it too. I think Operating in in the climate space, developing disaster resilient solutions or ways we can help transition to clean energy. These are all very interesting 
challenges to work on, but they're difficult. And we know they're difficult because people have been working on them for many years. So I think if there's a core action we've taken that has enabled us to, and I almost don't even want to say succeed because we're still just getting started here, but to stay alive, so to speak, it's, it's our speed at which we iterate and how quickly we continue to adapt and find new opportunities and pursue opportunities and change things that aren't working and keep things the same, but double down on them when they are. I think that's been a very useful part of OWL's DNA is to not get pigeonholed into that. The only thing we can do to be successful is disaster resilient communications networks, but realize, hey, this technology we developed it's very closely aligned with these other opportunities, ocean health monitoring to generate more accurate data about climate change. And so the engineering effort is not minimal, but lower than had we just been starting off to develop those adjacent solutions. But for us, that has been a pretty successful component of this effort is, is a never ending desire to find more opportunities, more markets, more places to deploy our solution. On that subject, you know, I'd say maybe in the business world, you know, we talk about how, you know, we're, we're endlessly flexible, we're adaptable. Meanwhile, we as humans, we do have a certain inertia sometimes. And, you know, I'd suggest, from what I've seen in business, sometimes, you know, we can fall in love with our own creations, right? And we can be on that own line. How do you think about inculcating that into the DNA of Project OWL and um, OWL integrations in terms of, keeping that alive? Is that something you have to work on constantly yourself with the team? How, you know, would you have any thoughts or any advice in terms of how this all sits together in terms of how you can continue to strive to be open, to be flexible? It's difficult, right? Like if you're an engineer or a technologist, if you're creative, you tend to either love instinctively or want to love your creations, but it, it's very critical to at times, and I think we believe this internally, to be the most critical of your creations of anyone who will get the chance to see it or play with it or, or use the product. And the reason is, if you think of a business as taking an idea into a marketplace and testing those assumptions to see if there's value for a set of customers, an effective strategy to find the most useful value of your tool is to try a lot of different opportunities, try a lot of angles, and eliminate the ones that either don't work or are not effective enough. And that requires a lot of iteration. And so going into OWL, every member of this team accepted that we didn't have all the answers and that the only way we were going to figure it out was by building, deploying, reviewing, iterating and continuing on that flywheel over and over until we found a product that truly fit where it needed to go. And this is evidenced in our past by the multiple deployments we made to Puerto Rico, each one having a slightly, a duckling of slight variance to the ones preceding it. This is evidenced in the sensor networks we operate in. And you know, if you looked at the business as a timeline, you would see that iteration from product to product to product to deployment. And so I think no matter what element of business you're in, certainly this is true in technology to be your own harshest critic, but to know that if you can get even just one person to love your product, chances are there's a whole lot, many more people out there who could love it too. 
love that that idea it sounds like you're being almost like endlessly experimental right is is keeping that mindset at least of being of keeping that how did this work not getting carried away with the hubris that can go along with putting things out into the world Definitely. I mean, and sometimes it's hard too, right? Like when you, when you're just getting started, you'll have a lot of people who support you, a lot of people who want to see you succeed, but they won't give you the cold water, right? They won't give you the feedback you need to hear. And we still get this to, to this day that has started from day one and continues to this day is seeking out the ice cold water from people. And it's actually doing cold plunges can be quite refreshing. In fact, and I enjoy when we talk with advisors, it really helps to, a lot of times we've considered the work we do here as, I'm not a sculptor, but what I imagine some of the folks making those really fancy sculptures in the Louvre must have gone through, right? How long would it have taken to get a giant block of granite down to even something sort of resembling a human? But if you just keep chipping away slowly but surely every day, every single day, eventually you're going to get to something pretty close. And so that's been our perspective and what's kept us going up until now. Nice metaphor of a sculpture there. All right, Brian. Well, I thank you for your time today. This has been a very illuminating conversation. I know, as you mentioned earlier, if people want to get involved, you've got the open source communities where there are, you know, where people can experiment with some of your technologies, some of the pieces that you have there, some of the data as well. And if somebody feels like, wow, I would love to take this in a different direction, there are all those opportunities available. And our integrations is the portal to take others on that journey. So I encourage folks to check that out. If they are interested, clusterduckprotocol.org is the open source community. We have an open Slack channel. You can join through that website and that's where all 1300 of us, myself included, sit in there 24 hours a day. So if you want to get in touch, that's a great way to do it. Email certainly works too. Appreciate you taking the time today. Um, on that, guys, of you being endlessly experimental, I'm sure that uh, we'll touch base at some time in the future, and I'm sure there'll be a whole different conversation going on. But with the foundation that you have, seem to keep around this idea of business and purpose, and how those two pieces come together. Areas like climate adaptation, areas like how we can be more resilient as a community. So, I wish you well. Continue on your journey, and uh, thank you for taking time with us today. Well, that was an interesting interview about how to prioritize energy and emissions management in your sustainability strategy. It's not often we think about the ocean as a, a precursor to helping us understand where to manage risk associated to emissions. And Daryl, have you seen a trend in this direction with other organizations growing towards monitoring in oceans to help us understand where our emissions footprints are? It was really interesting for me coming through this interview was the idea that oceans in some ways are the canary in the coal mine, that where we see things, for instance, where it could be the levels of carbon dioxide that the oceans are sequestering. It could be things such as the temperature rises. And then when you look at things such as, I know we see other projects where even looking at things like coral reefs and being able to detect where, for instance, bleaching on coral reefs is a way in which you can start to readily see how climate change is affecting systems in a way that can often be a, a very early signal of something that may be going on that you need to monitor more broadly looking forward. 
Yeah, it's often, you know, finding we're just not proactive enough, right, when it comes to preparing for disasters or risk. And we see more and more companies who are looking to get ahead so that they can be prepared in the event of an issue. You know, it reminds me of like many of the companies that we work with on monitoring data related to the assets that they have, the facilities that they have, the locations that they serve, you know, knowing what what are we going to do in the event of an issue? How do we prepare ourselves, even for the simple things like our assets are aging or they are ready for replacement and being ahead of them, right? So that preparation, because all of that helps us get ahead from an emissions standpoint, running at the most efficient possible manner for our our organization. So very, very cool to see that we're starting to look at other areas where we can get that proactive view of how much emissions we are putting out there. That's a really good point that you bring up, especially this idea that you can measure what you can manage, right? And so the ability to be able to just keep an eye in terms of what's happening with all kinds of devices and all kinds of things that relate to business and how we can actually measure those things now in a way which we just haven't been able to before. One other piece I think that came through in this interview was the way in which also the use of AI to be able to look for patterns where you look for those anomalies, where you can start to see, okay, if this is, you know, a wobble in a graph can tell you that potentially where something is about to fail or where there could be, whether in the case of oceans, it could be a case in which temperature rises. But like you're saying, you know, it could be for a device where something in a manufacturing plant where it could be just a signal that maybe, you know, a week or a month from now that might be failing. Exactly. And the more data that we have, the better able we are to, let's say, predict when we're going to need to be prepared. Uh, We're seeing a great trend in that direction. Help me be prepared for my next site location. Where should I be? Predict for me where I should be moving my uh, operations and my manufacturing. Predict for me when my machinery is going to need replacement. Predict for me how much investment I'm going to need to make in different areas. So all this helps, uh, this data helps us get to a picture where we can be more proactive and manage that risk up front. The other piece there is with that risk, is, as you're mentioning, this, there's obviously the business context to this, right? In terms of if you can be ahead of the game, it means that you can save and you can potentially manage costs more effectively. But then there's also this environmental aspect. You get this double benefit. Well, thank you so much for listening. This has been the Impact Up podcast where we cover trends in sustainability. Thank you so much.